So they'll be with us in our, uh, I think they're joining us for our fellowship meal. And uh, if you don't know them, you should get to know them. And if you do know them, make sure that uh, um, you, you encourage and strengthen them. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. I think the moment I met you down in Fountain Hills, I liked you then. And I still do. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So. Well, the year was 1887 and... Charles Spurgeon was in the winter of his life, and for more than three decades, he had enjoyed really the singular status as the world's most well-known preacher. But just over the horizon, storm clouds were gathering. You see, in March of 1887, Charles Spurgeon wrote an article in his monthly magazine called The Sword and Trowel. The article was entitled, The Downgrade. And in this article, he warned that some ministers were, quote, denying the proper deity of the Son of God, renouncing faith in his atoning death. They were on a slippery slope, or as he would say, a downgrade. They were moving away from the essential evangelical doctrines. He writes further, quote, A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And in this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements, and on this plea usurps pulpits which were erected for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted, the inspiration of scripture is derided, the Holy Spirit is degraded into an influence, the punishment of sin is turned to fiction, and the resurrection into a myth. And yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them. The case is mournful. Certain ministers are are making infidels. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as those preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. The cost to this most beloved preacher with with separation from longtime colleagues. It cost him his close friendships and, according to his wife, the exasperation of his numerous illnesses and the hastening of his death. The need in the church for spiritual discernment cannot be overstated. The need for the church for spiritual discernment cannot be overstated. We, as a church, need to know when do we stand firm. But we also need to know when do we bend. When is unity wrong? And when is concession right? Spurgeon is saying, we can know, these people call us brethren. We're not brethren. We have nothing to do with one another. Unity was wrong. So when is unity wrong and concession right? When is it right to stand firm and not bend, not give an iota, not a millimeter? And when is the time that we say, you know what, this is something that we can be flexible on? 
the need for spiritual discernment in the church cannot be overstated. And so let me just make a quick plea with you. As you pray for this church, I would sincerely ask that you would give the church, the leaders, the entire congregation, great wisdom to be able to know when do we bend and when do we stand firm. I think too often in the past the church has stood firm on things that it should have bent on. And it is bent when it should have stood firm. And we're always in danger of making the wrong decision. And so I would, I would plead with you that you would pray for this church that we would make right decisions in that regard. We're continuing our study in Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 35. So you may want to turn there um, today as we consider the uh, further consider the council at Jerusalem. It is really one of the first ecumenical uh, uh, councils of the church. Um, and the primary issue, the primary issue at the, that was addressed at the, the church, um, the Jerusalem council, was this. On what basis is the person made right with God? Ultimately, it was about, is the work of Christ sufficient to save a person from their sins? Is a person saved by God's grace alone, or does something else need to be added to the work of Christ? This counsel became necessary because wolves had entered into the church. There was this internal threat. Make no mistake, it was an internal threat to destroy the church. And the decision at the work, at, at this council, was that the work of Christ is sufficient to save. And so they made a decision. Here's the decision. We are saved, we believe that we are saved by grace alone. And then... They gave four requirements to the Gentile church or to Gentile believers. Four requirements to maintain unity. That's where we were last week. Uh, we're going to repeat a little bit today, but that's just a quick background of what we looked at last week. That's in um, uh, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Let me give you a little preview of, 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 of where I'm going to go today. And... Uh, I hope we can learn much of Christ in our relationship with him. What I want to do today is I want to clarify Christian essentials. What are the essentials? And, and here's how I'm going to define essentials. I'm going to define essentials as this. Truths so integral to the Christian faith that if removed, you no longer have the Christian faith. Are you with me? Truths so integral that if you remove them, you, you no longer have the Christian faith. This is where Spurgeon was going. He's saying these people are denying certain things. And then they want to say, well, this is just a, a, a revision or a modernization of old truths. And Spurgeon said, no, you have changed the Christian faith so that it is no longer the Christian faith. For instance, let me just give you a very simple one. 
Those who might say that Jesus is a great moral teacher. Well, he was, but he is only a great moral teacher. Now, you can believe that. They would deny his divinity. They would deny his eternality. They would deny um, his place as, um, as God. Now, you can hold that. You may be here today and say, that's what I believe. You can believe that. Please, just don't have the audacity to say it's Christian. It's not. The church has never believed it. It's, it's a principle that the church has not bent on ever. All right, so that's just one example. You can believe that. Please, don't call it Christian. Because it is so essential um, the divinity and humanity of Christ is so essential to the Christian faith that to reject it or alter it makes the Christian faith null and void. So that's, that's what I hope to do, is to clarify some of the essentials. Now, let me also um, state this as a bit of caution, not only for myself, but maybe even for you. I'm going to walk an extremely fine line today. I'm going to... Uh, and so I pray that you would give me a little bit of grace. Because I may err in my speech. And, and, and I pray that I'm not. I pray that what I say is utterly clear as in regards to my position on the essentials of the Christian faith. So let me state this at the outset. So if I do err in my speech you will know that it was just an errant word and not an official position. I believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. All right? Am I clear on that? All right? We are not saved by adding anything to the work of Christ. The work of Christ is completely and utterly sufficient to save. I add nothing. But I will walk a tightrope today. And I pray, and you can pray for me, that we are clear. So if you will, join with me in prayer, and then we'll read our text, and we will uh, begin unpacking it. Our gracious Lord, we thank you, Father God, that we can be stunned by grace. That you would, as the song says, save a wretch like me, on Christ's merit. That his righteousness then becomes my righteousness. His sinlessness becomes my sinlessness. And so I pray, Father God, that you would open our, our eyes and our ears and help us and open our hearts and our minds to, first of all, love you more than anything that we would love you with all of our being, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. So uh, give us your spirit this day to understand your word. Help me, Lord God, to speak well and precisely, that there be no confusion, but that you be honored and glorified in all that is said and done. And these things we ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. 
So I'll read our text today, and then we'll, uh, we'll look a little bit closer at it. So in cha- chapter 15, verse 22, we read this. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the elders, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burdens than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you will keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And this is God's holy word. So I want to begin just with some background so that we're because there is some overlapping material here. So just if you weren't here or you're unfamiliar or you've forgotten what we talked about last week, a little bit of background. The decision of the Jerusalem Counter Council is now going to be delivered to those who are living in the area of Antioch. So the Jerusalem Council took place. A verdict had been, had, uh, been decided. And now they're going to send a letter up to the the brethren to the church at Antioch and relay the decision of the council. So two men from Jerusalem are chosen to accompany Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, um, Antioch is their church. That's their home church. Um, and, but they're down in Jerusalem, so the Jerusalem church chooses two people to accompany Paul and Barnabas with the letter containing the verdict. And so that's kind of what's going on here today. So, the essence of the Jerusalem Council, the essence of this council, was the affirmation that a person is saved by grace alone. Grace alone. That's what we entitled last week's message, Grace Alone. And let me just make sure that we're, we're not talking Christianese and we can un- unpack this idea of grace. Um, grace isn't simply what we do before a meal, words we say before a meal, but we are understanding grace to mean God's unearned or unmerited favor. Grace, the word, just comes from the word gift. So it is God's unearned gift to people. All right. So grace is God's unearned, unmerited, a gift that is earned as a wage, right? So if I earn something, that's not a gift, that's, that's what you owe me. 
So grace, salvation by grace, when we talk about that, we're saying that you did nothing to earn salvation. It is a gift of God. That was the determination at the Jerusalem Council. It was the central consideration of the Jerusalem Council. And the reason it became necessary was because men had gone to the town, to the city of Antioch. And let me see if I... If my little pointer is going to work today. Oh, I bet it does. So, Jerusalem's way down here at the bottom of my map. All right? So, you can see here's the Dead Sea, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee right there. And Antioch, the one we're talking about, is up in here. All right? So, um, some guys had come down from Jerusalem and up here to Syrian Antioch, and they had begun to teach the insufficiency of Christ's work at Calvary. In other words, the work that Christ did on the cross at Calvary was great. It just didn't do everything. So you need to add something to the work of Christ. His work needed something additional from us. That's what they're teaching. All right. So they leave Jerusalem. They go up to Antioch because that's where all the Gentile. That's where there's kind of this Gentile revival. Remember, two categories of people, Jews and Gentiles. And and the Jews are saying, listen, here's the deal, you Gentiles. I'm glad you know God and I'm glad that you're being you've kind of come to your senses and that you're believers now. But you need to become Jews first. Then you can become a Christian. You need to adhere to the laws of Moses and primarily through circumcision, but also through other external markers, such as um, what you eat. You need to eat kosher food. If you eat kosher food um, and that external marker is evident and that you observe uh, certain holy days and you mark your body, then um, you will be qualified to be a Christian. That was the disruption. People had gone there and the Gentiles are saying, wait a second, I thought we were saved by grace. Nobody's ever put that requirement on us. That's what prompted the council, that the work of Christ was insufficient to save. That they needed something else from us. And let me just go ahead and state this. That is the most popular form of religion today. Without a doubt, the most popular form of religion today is that I need to do something to garner God's favor. We might call this legalism. Legalism, then, is the conviction that law-keeping is the ground for our acceptance with God. The conviction that law-keeping is the ground of our acceptance before God. In other words, I'm accepted before God because I've done these good things, and therefore God will receive me. Like I said, that's a, that's a, that's a wage that is due. It is not a gift that is given. I have done X. And I've checked all the boxes. I'm a nice person. On Thanksgiving, I go down to the homeless shelter. I feed the poor. I do all the things that I'm supposed to do. And, and I'm really nice. Unlike my neighbor. And so, therefore, God, you should have favor upon me and grant to me salvation. It comes in many, many forms. As I said, it is the most popular uh, form of religion Today, but it is not Christian. You may believe it. My job today, or one of my purposes today, is to convince you that it is uh, um, 
it is void, it is empty. And you may believe it, but we just don't want to call it Christian. Legalism is a failure to be stunned that I'm accepted by God by what Christ has done. That Christ's work has saved me. Not baptism. Not joining a church. Not being a leader in a church. Not giving to the poor. None of those things earn our acceptance. I am stunned by the fact that God would save me simply because he did. I had nothing to God. Nothing. My entrance into the kingdom of God did not somehow make this some spectacular entity or organism. My inclusion in the church did not somehow make the church something great. In fact, probably it might have weakened it a little bit. It might have defamed it a little bit. I don't know that I added anything to God. No, I I know that I didn't add anything. God did not become more complete because of my being received by him. And so I am stunned by the fact that God in his mercy would save a wretch like me. So that's the central issue that is going on. Saved by grace, it is a gift. Salvation then is a gift of God. And it is merited on the work of Christ. Christ earned it and gave it to you. Not because you're a nice guy not, or a nice woman. Not because you're better than your neighbor or anything like that. So that's the essence. That is an essential of the Christian faith. You take that away and you don't have the Christian faith. You've got something else. But you don't have Christianity. That's why it's an essential. Let me just quickly list a few other essentials. I'm not going to spend much time with them. This list is not exhaustive, but I think it is somewhat thorough. But I think that if you deny any of these, you're welcome to deny them. Just please don't call it Christian. The first one would be the inspiration, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. The inspiration, the authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. That is, that the Bible is inspired by God. It is not just simply the words of either wise human beings or uneducated fishermen or anything like that. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is authoritative. What it says, we hold to. And let me add this, because this is really where we, things change. We talked about this a little bit last week. It is also sufficient. It is sufficient. In other words, there is no other, no other words are necessary. So when somebody says, well, we, we love the Bible, 
man, it's great. It's authoritative. We believe everything it says. And we have another work. And we think that it is equal. It's just another work. It's, it, it confirms everything that the Bible says. Well, first of all, then why is it necessary? But we have another work. Another source of authority. It could be a creed or a council. We believe in creeds and councils. Church creeds and councils. Love them. They're just not Scripture. They teach us. They guide us. They help us. When somebody comes along and says, I got something else too. I got this personal revelation from God. Let me tell you. So, the inspiration, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture is one. The Trinity would be another one. Um, And I know people really struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity. And the reason they struggle with it is because it's hard. Um, And I make no... I'm not here to make the an explanation of the Trinity easy. I have no easy explanation of the Trinity. Here's what I do know is the Bible speaks of it very, very clearly. All right? And let me say this also. Many people come and they say, well, I have a problem. The the, the Trinity is a problem. How can there be three gods and one God? I don't get it. You do the math and it doesn't work. Let me tell you my position, the Trinity is not a problem. The Trinity is a solution. If you don't have a Trinity, you have a problem. Because you have multiple gods. Or you have some other weird type of... The Trinity solves the problem. Am I saying that I fully grasp it? No, but we should not be surprised that I am baffled by an infinite God. That my finite mind does not grasp everything of an infinite God. In fact, that makes perfect sense. I I would be questioning, I would be suspicious of a faith that I perfectly understand. Because that means it fits into my, my, my IQ can figure it out. That makes God pretty small. Just a thought. Another essential is that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. Another essential is the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. The sacrificial or the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. In other words, Jesus didn't merely die as an example. I think he was an example. I think that there is an example there. I just don't think that is the essence of the crucifixion. The, the essence of the crucifixion is that an innocent man died in my place. Substitutionary. And that's a biblical thing. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Substitutionary, what we, a fancy term, substitutionary atonement for all of you Bible students. That is, an innocent victim paid your price. That's what we're saying. And it's sufficient. The work that he did is sufficient. That we don't pay for it after death and we go to some place and then we, we pay for it later on or I can make it up with, you know, if I do a mission work here during this life, then I can kind of add to the work of Christ. No, it is sufficient. 
And then I'll, I'll just lump three together. The bodily resurrection, ascension, and return of Christ. The bodily resurrection, ascension, and return of Christ. That is, Christ, when he uh, uh, rose from the dead, he rose bodily. He did not get dispersed into gases, as some people might say. This was not a spiritual resurrection. He was bodily raised. This is important because it has everything to do with you and me in the eternal state. That he ascended into heaven and he will return bodily. Um, It is not a spiritual return. He did not come back spiritually in 1844. He did not come back in 1914 spiritually. None of those things. When he comes back, you'll know. We won't have to say, gee, I wonder. I think that these are some essential, like I said, probably not exhaustive, but somewhat thorough. And to concede any of these things would alter what Christianity is. You may not believe them. It's just not Christian. It's not what the Christian church has ever taught. Ever. All right, so we're there. The essential. Grace alone. That is one of the essentials. That's what was determined at the, at the Council of Jerusalem. They were going to send a letter up to, to, to Antioch to let the Gentiles know up there, listen, you guys are on the right track. We've got brothers who have... Uh, We're in this meeting with Paul and Barnabas. Your church leaders were there at the council. We've sent some other witnesses along. They're going to affirm what your your church leaders are are saying was was determined there. You guys are good. We make no other we put no other burden on you. And then there's this listing of these four requirements. And I'm going to say four requirements. And let me just maybe state this as a an overall theme, and then unpack it a little bit. I, I, love is, is an essential of the Christian church. Love is an essential of the Christian church. But what do, so what do we make of these four requirements that the Gentiles were observed? Like, don't eat strangled meat. Um, don't eat meat with blood. Um, this, this issue of sexual immorality. What do we do with these things? First of all, let me remind you what they are not. We talked about this a little last week. Let me remind you a little of what they are not before we look at what they are. They are not requirements for salvation. They are not requirements. They'd already determined you're saved by grace alone. Now I'm going to put these, tell you Gentiles, here are four requirements that I want you to, that, that you need to follow. These are actions to maintain Christian unity because the Jerusalem Council, they said, listen, there are Jews all over the Roman Empire. They're in every city. Moses is read in every city. And now there are Gentiles in those cities coming to faith. And you guys have two really different cultures. I want you to make sure that you are keeping the bond of unity and not dividing over some of these other ceremonial issues. So that's just a little bit of a background there. I have to let you know that I wrestle a lot with these four requirements. 
I think most Bible students do. What do we do with these four requirements? Three of them are easy to deal with. We can just relegate them to uh, um, cultural differences. But the one with sexual immorality, it's like, well, that's a moral absolute for all time and all people. It's not a cultural thing. What do we do with these four requirements? We know that they don't say, but what am I supposed to do with them? And many commentators, many speakers have relegated these four to the realm of what we would call non-essentials. Remember, our sermon today is the essentials. What you need to be saved. And they would relegate these to, to the non-essentials. And in fact, yesterday afternoon, that's, or Friday afternoon, that's where I had these. I'm going to talk about the essentials of the faith and that these are non-essentials. And um, uh, Arvid, I, I wasn't planning on you being here today, but I'm glad you're here because they're... they're Adiaphora. You need to know that word. Otherwise, I would have put it up on the word. But I haven't got, given you a new word lately. So they're adiaphora, which means just things that disputed things. In other words, my salvation does not rest upon my proper preparation of food. Salvation is not dependent on my, the way I prepare my food. Or if I eat a rare steak. I know some of you breathe on the, the piece of meat and then call it good. <laughs> but here's what I'm going to do. And this is where I'm going to walk a very fine line. So I'm going to do my best to, uh, to be careful and yet try to be clear. I'm going to lift these two essentials. Not preparation of food or anything like that. What I want to do is I want to look, what is the motivation for giving these requirements? Why these requirements and not others? See, I think what is behind the giving of these requirements, to look behind the requirements, isn't so much whether you eat meat that was sacrificed to a pagan idol. The essential element behind don't eat meat sacrificed to a pagan idol in the midst of your Jewish brethren is love your brother. That's the essential element. That's what I'm going to lift up to the essential. Not how do you prepare your food, but do you love your brother? That's what the Jerusalem Council was. Listen, you're saved by grace. Now love your brother. And loving your brother is essential. To remove that from the Christian faith, you no longer have the Christian faith. You may not love your brother. You may even justify you not loving your brother. Just don't call that Christian. Loving our brothers and loving our sisters is an essential aspect of of the Christian faith. I want to read uh, as background just a little bit from Romans chapter 14 and then uh, I want to look at some, some passages in 1 John. But, um, well, Romans chapter 13 verse 8 says, no, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, it goes on. And then, when we get to Romans chapter 14, and especially verses 20 and following, it says this. Do not, Paul Paul is writing to this Roman church who is saved by grace, and then he says this, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. See, there were sensitivities that um, the, the filet mignon would have been sacrificed to an idol in a temple and then brought out into the marketplace and sold. And one person is going to say, that's been offered to a pagan. I can't eat it. Another person says, hey, it's cheap and it's good. That idol means nothing. I'm eating it. Paul's saying, listen, don't cause another, brother, don't cause another person to stumble by eating, meat, by eating meat. If it's going to hurt somebody, don't do it. All right? It's not good to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment um, on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So, love your brother. How do you love your brother? Don't take something that you have no problems with but you will cause your brother to stumble. Just avoid that. Love your neighbor. Love your brother. So let's look at this past, a couple of passages in 1 John which I think bring this out really, really clearly. Look at 1 John four nineteen through 21. By the way, this is all the way through the book of 1 John. We love because he first loved us. Listen to this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I think that's an essential. I don't know how to get around that. I'd love to say it's a non-essential and I get to hate people. But it's not. And this is talking about your Christian brother and your Christian sister. We are to love them. What I mean by love isn't just simply tolerate everything. It means that I will sacrifice for their good. My highest goal is their good. But, like I said, this is all over the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 goes like this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Did you get that? Whoever says he's in the light. I at the light of Christ in me, but I hate my brother. No, you're in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is all over the book of 1 John. Brotherly love. Out of love for others, you will not do morally permissible things that would lead another person to sin. Do you love your brother? Then you will not do something that is morally permissible if it's going to harm your neighbor, your brother. This is a non-negotiable. This is an essential. 
Because if you are purposely hurting your brother for whom Christ died and putting a stumbling block in front of him, that is not love. Brotherly love. Here's the way it worked. Jews, brotherly love to the Jews. You will place no further burden upon the Gentiles. That's Jews. That's how you love your Gentile brothers. You do not say that you need to follow Moses. You do not exalt yourself and say, well, at least I eat kosher food. And you don't. No, you will put no further burden upon your Gentile brothers. You are saved by grace through faith, just as I am. Now, you Gentiles, this is how you love your Jewish brother. Don't do something that's morally permissible that you know is going to cause your brother to stumble. Don't do that. You're not loving your brother. Neither of those things is love. And if you are not acting in love, you are not loving God. This is an essential. So out of love for others, they will not do what is morally permissible if it might cause their brother to sin. Now, here's the thing. I know that we can't guard every single thing we do. But when we do things, we are thinking of our brother or sister in mind. Now, I know we don't eat meat sacrificed to idols or anything like that. Um, or That's not an issue for us today. But it still happens. Um, you know, so there's still people, religions that off, offer food offerings to their, to their gods and, um, and that may even turn around and sell it. You're going to, idols mean nothing to me. It doesn't bother me. <clears throat> but I'm not going to do something moral, that's morally permissible if I know I will consider my brother or my sister. If I know people have a moral objection to eating meat, I am not going to flaunt my burger in front of them. I think, how do I love my brother? Now, there are plenty of people in our church who don't eat meat. Um, Most of them don't, but are not offended or not stumbled by another person eating meat. So let me clarify. I hope this is a clarification. I, I put this up. Remember what I'm defining as an essential. Is a truth so integral to the Christian faith that its absence denies the Christian faith. So I want you to understand, you are not saved. You are not made right before God by loving your brother. In other words, you do not become righteous before God by loving your brother. You are made righteous before God on the merits of Christ alone. But loving your brother is an essential. But if you don't love your brother, it's not the Christian faith anymore. If you do not love your brother, you deny the salvation that you're claiming. This is why Jesus, John says, listen, the guy who says he's in the light but hates his, his brother is walking in darkness. It's not light. So if you claim to walk in the light, then you will love your brother. And I think that's kind of what's going on. And I hope I've been somewhat clear on that, that we are, how do we enter into the Christian life? We enter in by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. But if the person who is saved by grace through faith on the merits of Christ does not love his brother, I don't know that that's the Christian faith. It's something else. Now, we all sin and we all have times where we, you know, do stupid things and do sinful things and we need to be forgiven. 
So I've, I, I hope I have explained what I mean by loving your brother as an essential. It is so integral to the Christian faith that if we take it out, we don't have the Christian faith. I'm not saying that it saves you. I'm saying that you alter the Christian faith if you don't love your brother and it's no longer Christian. It's something else. Well, I'll move on from that and hopefully I am clear. If I am not, we can talk um, after church or this week. One of the things that really uh, excited me was the outcome of this letter. In verse 31, I thought this was fascinating to me. In verse 31, um, and when they had read it, that is, read the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So they take the letter on up to Antioch, or actually down to Antioch. They take their letter on down to Antioch. They read it to the church, and the church hears the contents of the letter, and they rejoice. Um, well, you say, of course they rejoice because they, they read that they're saved by grace. But here's the other thing the letter said. I mean, that's a reason for rejoicing. You should rejoice that we're saved by grace. But that wasn't the totality of the letter. The letter also included prohibitions, restrictions. Restrictions are not usually a cause of rejoicing. Listen, you're loved by God. Yay! Now, I want you to do this, this, and that. Oh. Restrictions are not normally a cause for rejoicing. And yet they rejoiced over the content of this letter. I understand they are rejoicing over being saved by grace, but they're also, if I'm reading this correctly, rejoicing over the content of the letter, the entire content. That is, that also, love your brother by refraining from these things. In other words... Being saved by, they're rejoicing because they are saved by grace and given the opportunity to love one another. That brought them joy. Really? I get to demonstrate the love of Christ to my brother and all I got to do is just kind of be sensitive to the things they're eating? Right on. If that's going to demonstrate love of Christ for my brother, I'm in. They're rejoicing that they get, they learn how to love their brothers and sisters. Loving one's neighbor actually then brings greater joy than pr promoting one's liberty. Usually we think, oh, I just want to do what I want to do. That's what's going to make me happy. These guys seem, if I'm reading this correctly, seem to be saying that I get great joy learning how to love you. I have great joy with the fact that God has loved me and saved me by the substitutionary death of Christ, and now I actually get to demonstrate that love by extending it to my brother and sister who I know. Right on. And you mean all I have to do is just like, like not do the whole blood thing when I eat? Right on. So instead of promoting my liberty, I get to eat whatever I want. I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace. I get to do whatever I want. Who cares about you? I'm, I'm a believer. No. Really, I get to lay down my life for you. That's what you're telling me right on. I'm excited about that. They're rejoicing over the opportunity to love their brother. That's revolutionary to me. 
So joy then comes from following God's command to love my neighbor. Joy comes from following God's command to love my neighbor. So then the joy that springs from love um, exceeds the joy that comes from self-interest. The joy that springs from love exceeds the joy that comes from self-interest. I think that's awesome. A couple other things stand out about this. We see this continual strengthening and encouraging that um, Barnabas and Silas are able to strengthen the, uh, the church, strengthen the saints. And I don't know if you've noticed how often we see this in the book of Acts. There is this constant strengthening and encouraging the church. And so um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here other than to exhort you, strengthen and encourage one another. It's easy to pull people down. Sometimes we do have to admonish one another, but strengthen one another, encourage one another, share God's word with them. It's, it's all over the book of Acts. And then the final thing that I saw here that I thought was interesting was the unity that salvation by grace brings. The unity that grace brings. I find it especially interesting in verse 28. I know I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit. Whoops. Maybe not 28. Oh, yeah. 23, if I'm reading this correctly. They sent the following letters. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are Gentiles. We are Jewish brothers. And we're considering you, the Gentiles, our brothers. Why are we brothers? We are not superior to you. We're on equal grounds. Why? Because we are saved by the same grace. We're not superior because we had the laws of Moses or anything. We're brothers. We're family. We entered into the family the exact same way. I love that, that, that sense of unity that the salvation by grace brings disparate groups together. That is, Jews and Gentiles are family. They're the family of God. They disagreed on all kinds of different things. But here's what they knew. Christ died for my sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried and raised again according to the scriptures. I am saved by that work of Christ and so are you. I didn't get in because of my superior actions or because I am somehow got the right bloodline or I've got the right this or the right that or the right parents or, or anything like that. I got in because Christ set his love upon me. Salvation by grace takes people who ought not to get along and causes them to get along because we have one thing in common. I'm a wretched sinner and Christ died for me. And I'm stunned by it. Just wake up every day going, how did that happen? Groups now that have been at war with one another are reconciled, which reflects the truth that man who is at war with God has, all, has been reconciled to God by grace. I long for, and I think we have done some level of achieving here, this 
is a diverse church. Diverse in age, diverse in race, diverse in economics, diverse in education, diverse in backgrounds, diverse in all sorts of different things. I take great joy when I see young people hanging out with old people. Because it's like, well, they should be like, like an old people hanging out with young people. And lots of color in the church. I mean, I know there's a pretty Anglo community. And so we're going to reflect our community. But it's not solely Anglo. There's people here who have all sorts of great degrees in education. Some of you have probably barely finished high school. But we're joined together in union with one another because of the grace that Christ has shed upon us. Some of you come from great loving homes. Some of you from broken homes. But we've been joined together. The love of Christ. To me, that, that's a great church. That's a great church. I long for more of that. Because I think it exalts grace. It shows God's grace. Well, there's one last thing, and then I'll, I'll be done. And I'll be very short with this. One of the things we note throughout the book of Acts is how this keeps going on, the continuation. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. In other words, Paul and Barnabas continue to take the message of the grace of Christ and keep proclaiming it and keep proclaiming They keep teaching God's word. There's an emphasis on the teaching and preaching of the word of God, an emphasis on God's word, which is why we emphasize God's word in this church. Because I think that's one of the emphasis of the early church is the, is the proclamation of God's word. Well, I'm going to close with this. We've all been here long enough and fellowship meals downstairs and we all want to get to it. So my last three, just a quick conclusion. Let me clarify. Salvation is a gift of God. It was purchased by Christ. This is a stunning truth. Number two, love for one another reflects and demonstrates receipt of that gift. Salvation is a gift of God. Love for your brother reflects and demonstrates that you have received that gift. I'm a recipient of that gift. How do I know? Because I love my brother. If I don't love my brother, then how do I know that you've even received that gift? And finally, as a family, let us love one another. One of the ways we do that is uh, get together with one another. Uh, Our fellowship meal is awesome. And the reason it's awesome, not only because there's good food, but it gives us an opportunity to hang out with people and to get to know people that we don't know very well and learn about uh, their story and learn how God has saved them and how Christ has been working in them. You will be encouraged when you hear other people's story. Find people you don't know well or don't know at all. Maybe somebody different from you. If you're in a certain stage of life, find somebody in a different stage of life and get to know them. And for all you introverts, you're just shuddering right now, going, oh no, somebody's going to come up and talk to me. Love your extroverted brethren by nodding and saying, I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Thank you for coming and talking to me. And you extroverts, love your introverted 
neighbor by <laughs> being brief. <laughs> being brief. So I haven't figured out the introvert extrovert, how to love one another, but um, and still fellowship together. But we'll work it out. All right. Well, I got nothing. Well, I got a lot else, but I thought I'm going to do. Let's stand.